2 Kings chapter 5. The topic that I want to talk about today is uh, the topic of idolatry. And the main reason why I want to talk about this particular topic is because I feel God has really been speaking to me personally about it, not in an abstract or impersonal way, like, hey, here's this concept and here's the theory around idolatry. But actually, God has been like searching my heart and He has been showing me the hidden idols that I've been coddling for years and, uh, and helping me to expose them and deal with them and treat them because he knows that it's not good for me. And so um, what I want to do is um, basically structure my sermon. Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Structure my sermon around a narrative, uh, a narrative of, of Scripture. And the narrative is basically going to do all the heavy lifting for me. So I really just need to read it. And, um, and it makes my job easy. And uh, what I'll do from time to time is stop in the story and focus on one particular point of the story that is related to idolatry. And then from there, uh, I want to share a little bit of a personal story um, and how idolatry has played itself out in my life. And then finally, we'll close with some, some application points. So, before we get into the story, I want to set up the foundation. I want to set up some frameworks so that we all understand what I mean when I'm talking about idolatry. Because if, if I say something and, and you take it as another thing, then we're, we're, we're miscommunicating. So what do we mean when we talk about idolatry? Let's, let's start with the definition. This is um, an awesome definition that I read in a book by Tim Keller, which I love. And he says this, idolatry is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, your security, and your identity. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I like that definition. I like the fact that he highlights that it could be anything. It could be anything physical, like statue that you worship, or it could be anything metaphysical, like your career. It could be something, like it could be like a concept, like your wedding day or your marriage day, or it could be a desire, like the acceptance of others. An idol could be personal, like your wife or your dog, or it could be impersonal, like your car. An idol could be anything. And idolatry is basically when you take something good that God has given from His creation and you make it ultimate. And in the process of shuffling your priorities, you either, it, it either takes the place of God or it takes the place of something else that's important in your life. So in that way, idolatry is the, the great misprioritization of things in your life. You've shuffled things wrongly. What should be first is tenth. What should be tenth is second. What should be second is first. You've, you've reshuffled everything in the way that it should not be. So that's idolatry. So let's kick off our story in 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll start with verse 1.
Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. So the story starts off in the setting of Aram, the country of Aram, which is present-day Syria. And we're introduced to the first character whose name is Naaman. Naaman was a citizen of Aram, and he was a general. He was a, he was a, a very mighty, very, very powerful, very influential man, very rich man. And I want you to notice that the author contrasts his power with his skin disease. So this is a man who is very influential and powerful and rich, and yet he's got some kind of skin disease that he just can't seem to get rid of. And so the author from the beginning is already trying to communicate that you can have all the power, all the influence, all the money in the world, but the reality is that there's just some things in this world that can't be changed with influence and power and money. And so we continue the story, verse 2. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. The, the prophet that she's referring to here is Elisha, the disciple of Elijah. Verse 4, So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of, of silver, that's 30, 340 kilograms, and 150 pounds of gold, that's 70 kilograms of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, in case you're wondering, uh, that's a lot of money. Uh, that's equivalent of 600 annual salaries. So to reach that kind of money, you, you kind of have to work for 600 years, or you've got to get 600 people who have worked for one year, and they pull their funds together. Like this guy, Naaman, is filthy rich. He's, he's really well off. And I want you to notice the two implicit tactics that the author is employing here in his, in his duration, in his story. The first is that he wants you to fill in the gaps. We know that Naaman's rich, and we know that he's taking money with him, but surely he doesn't need all that money for his trip. The author wants you to fill in the gap. And the gap that he wants you to fill is that he wants you to know that that money is going to be offered to the person who heals him. Because he's taking the story in a particular direction. He wants you to know that. He's preparing you for what's coming. So he doesn't just want you to fill in the gap, he also wants you to personalize the story. Personalize the story. If you were in Naaman's shoes, and you had a skin disease, and you had, what, let's say that's equivalent to $50 million, if, if an average salary is 50, 60, 70,000 in Australian context, and that's 600 years, that's, you're talking 30, 40, 50 million dollars. If you had that amount of money and you had a skin disease, what would you be willing to give to get rid of it? And if you were Elisha, we're going to get there, but if you're Elisha, the prophet, the healer of God, 
if you're Elisha and you're being offered that kind of money, would you refuse? And why? Or would you accept? And why? The author wants you to personalize the story, to put yourself in the shoes of the characters and ask yourself, what would I do? Verse 6. He brought the letter, he meaning Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent to you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God, killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he's only picking a fight with me. So, what's going on here? The king of Aram writes the king of Israel a letter, and he says, here's my servant, heal him. And so, the king of Israel is like scandalized. He's like, man, this is an impossible task. How, I don't have the power to heal this guy. So, he rips his clothes, and he thinks that the king of Aram is using this as a strategy to declare war. It's like, you know, if you're the Prime Minister of, um, of Australia and uh, in walks the ambassador for Russia and he's got an SMS from Vladimir Putin and he says, here's my ambassador, um, you better heal him of incurable cancer or else. You feel pretty threatened in that moment, right? That's what's happening with the King of Israel. He thinks that the King of Aram is using this as a strategy to declare war. Because he knows that he can't heal him. I can't heal this guy. I don't have that kind of power. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So, notice what's happening here. As we read the narrative and we read of the king's response, we're led to believe that it was a perfectly reasonable response in light of the scandalous request for the king to heal Naaman. And yet, the author then like flips the script on us and shows us that the king's response was totally unreasonable in light of God's power which works through Elisha. And all of this is, of course, preparing for the moment we've all been waiting for. It's the crescendo moment when Elisha encounters Naaman. It's been hinted at from the beginning of the encounter with um, Naaman and that servant girl. And so we've been waiting for this moment. And so, you know, Naaman with all of his money and Elisha, the prophet, with the power of God to heal, what's going to happen? And so we reach verse 9. This is what it says. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he, he stood at the door of Elijah's ho Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand all over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, 
better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I just wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? So what's happening here is that Naaman departs from the king's presence and he heads to Elisha. And uh, he comes in all his pomp and in all his glory and in, in all his grandeur, right? With his chariots and his money and his horses. And Naaman is expecting like this grand welcome. He's expecting like, you know, fireworks and, you know, food and servants. And instead, he receives a servant at the front of the door who says to him, go and wash in the River Jordan seven times. Now, I don't know if you've seen the River Jordan before. I don't know if you've been there before. My wife was baptized in the Jordan River. But it's not spectacular. I haven't been there. I Googled it, and I was like, this is pretty average. Like, this is pretty dull and bland. There's not much special about it. It's no Niagara Falls. It's not the Iguazu Falls, right? It's pretty bland. So Naaman, he gets super angry, he's revolted, he storms off, and he's thinking, man, I've come all this way, all this way, with all this money, to be greeted by a messenger, and the messenger tells me that I need to go to the river, like the Jordan River, like this thing. And so he's furious, not only because he feels like he's wasted his time, but also because he expected it to be glamorous. He expected it to be this incredible display of, of power, and instead, he's told to wash in the River Jordan. He could have easily washed in the rivers that are closer to home, that are far more beautiful than that. So he's frustrated. He storms off, and then his servants come and they intervene. And they come and they say to him, Basically, they use the argument of, like, you've got nothing to lose. They say to him, Master, if you've already come all this way, and if the prophet had told you to do some great and mighty task, and you would have done it, then what have you got to lose by just going to the River Jordan and doing a simple task like washing yourself seven times, particularly given that you're already here? Why are you getting angry? You've got nothing to lose. I want you to notice the cluster of contrasts that's taking place here. And the author is doing this intentionally. It's not just that there's the contrast that the king, uh, the, that Naaman is, is wealthy and powerful and influential, yet he's got this skin disease. It's also that he comes in, in his glory, in his pomp, in his, in his majesty, right, as this really powerful, influential guy, and yet he was sent by a poor Israelite slave girl from home. And he was greeted by a servant at the door. He wasn't even welcomed in. He wasn't greeted with the same level of glory that he came in. He was greeted by a servant at the door. And although he was expecting some kind of, you know, magnificent means of being healed, he was told to go wash in that mediocre-looking river. 
Those are some of the, the contrasts. Naaman is expecting something grand. And what he gets instead is not what he expects. Little does Naaman know that the Jordan River was where God parted the waters for the second time for the people of Israel to be able to walk through as they went into the land of Canaan. And little does Naaman know that the river Jordan was where Elijah struck the cloak for the waters also to be parted for them to walk through. And little does Naaman know that it's the river Jordan that the axe head would float, and it's the river Jordan that Jesus would be baptized thousands of years later. You know, sometimes we can even idolize the particular way in which God works. And the reason why it's so deceptive and subtle is because it relates to God. How does God work? We sometimes make ultimate the ordinary way in which God works, or we make ultimate the extraordinary way in which God works. And when we idolize one or the other, we actually miss what God is doing altogether. We set ourselves up for failure because we're expecting Him to work in a particular way when actually, behind the scenes, He's working in a different way. And when He doesn't work according to your expectations, you feel like your life is falling apart. Why? Because you've built your house on foundations of sand, on something that is not God. And so we move on the story. It says here in, in verse 14, So Naaman went down, and he dipped himself. He thought, yeah, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to go dip myself in the, in the Jordan River seven times. And he did it according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored, and he became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him, and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives in whose presence I stand, I will not accept. So finally, the moment we've all been waiting for, we've all been kind of led to believe is coming since the beginning of the story, kind of like the, the, the crescendo, right? And uh, Naaman decides to go and dip himself in the river seven times, and of course, he's completely healed. It says that he was restored to that of baby skin. My uh, one-year-old and three-month daughter, Esther, like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the five love languages? Like, I'm a I'm touch, right? I'm always touching, and uh, Esther is exactly like me. She's also touch, and I'm always touching her face and her skin, and it is so silky smooth. It's crazy, and it says that this guy's, like, skin was restored back to that kind of smoothness. Just incredible. So he goes back to Elisha after he's healed, and he says two things. Number one, he says, there is no other God than the God of Israel. He renounces all allegiance to his former gods that, you know, Aram was a pagan society. They believed in foreign gods, not the God of Israel, not Yahweh. And so he renounces those gods and he turns to Yahweh. 
And the second thing that he does is that he urges Elisha to take the money. This is the moment, right? This is the moment we've been waiting for that, that was hinted at at the beginning of the story. He urges Elisha to take the money that he had brought from Aram, the 50 million equivalent dollars in our day. And Elisha refused. There's no, there's no pause in the story, right? Like there's, there's no moment where it's like, Elisha's like, oh, give, me, give me a second. I'm going to go home and think about it. And then I'll come back to you. Now, there's just like a flat refusal. It's like, there's, there's no thinking about this one. Hey, you want some? No. I've got 50. No. I've got so much. No. There's a flat refusal. And I believe that we, having been thousands of years removed from this story, we really need to personalize ourselves in this. Because if you were in that situation, what would you have done? And why? Think it like, just think about it. You have $50 million in front of you, and someone offers it after you've healed them. What would you say? Genuinely ask yourself the question, what would you do? Because we can rationalize it away. Like, man, I'm just going to... Um, Take one percent of it, you know. I'll take I'll take just a, a sl- just a little fraction. You know, I'll pay the bills, get a new car, put my kids in 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 private school, you know, pay off the home loan, the mortgage. That'd be really convenient. And the ninety nine percent, I'll give it to charity. What would you do? I believe that. The only reason why Elisha was able to refuse that money, because it was enticing and it was tempting, was because he did not have money and possessions as his idol. Because if he did have money and possessions as his idol, he would have very, very quickly accepted that money. And he would have rationalized it away as well. Now, I'll pay some of the profits to come to my profiting school, profitizing school, and you know, do my, my own thing and, you know, give to the, the Levites and the temple and, you know, 10% and do my thing. He knew that it was wrong to take the money. He knew that it was not the right thing. to. It would, would be immoral for him to take that money. Why? Because the healing was God's gift, not Elisha's. God performed the healing, not Elisha. So if you're taking that money, you're now undercutting God. You're double-crossing God. It's as though you're saying to Naaman, I did this. This is payment for what I've done. So he knew it was wrong for him to take the money, and so he refuses. Verse 16, Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Verse 17, Naaman responded, if not, Please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon, Rimon is their deity, to bow in worship while he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Ramon. When I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So Elisha said to him, go in peace. Now this is a, a really 
weird section of the story. Um, as Westerners who are far removed from that kind of culture and that kind of ge geography, really strange. Like, the first thing that happens is that Naaman requests for, for, like, for him to be able to take the dirt and the soil of Israel back home with him to Aram. That's the first thing he requests. Now, that's weird for us because we're not, like, that's strange. We're not, you know, superstitious. Uh, there's nothing different with that soil than there is with any other soil. It's, it's, just, matter, it's just matter. It's just particles and, and atoms, right? It's no different to the soil in Australia, in Brazil, in Syria, in Pakistan, in Iraq. It's no different. But I kind of get it. It's holy memorabilia. That's fine. You know, take it with you, and it'll remind you of this experience. That's cool. If the story ended there, we'd feel comfortable. But it doesn't end there, and it goes from strange to just bizarre. Because Naaman then asks, not only can I take some soil with me, but then he asks, will God forgive me? If when I'm in the temple with my king and the king bows down, is that okay? Is that okay that, 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 you know, I'm in the temple and the king is bowing down to a foreign deity. Is it okay that I'm with him? And I think it's just bizarre. And as, as you know, Western evangelicals, it could kind of, like stir us up a bit. We don't really know what to do with that text. We start asking questions like, you know, I don't know, is this guy's conversion false? Is, he, is it just lip service? We start asking questions like, you know, is Elisha being too lenient? Is, is Elisha falling into the trap of religious syncretism? Pluralism, where you believe in many religions and you know, your experience of God is just as valid as my experience of God. I personally think that Naaman underwent a genuine conversion, wasn't lip service. And I also don't think that what Elisha said was necessarily wrong. And I want to say three things. I want you to notice three things. Number one, notice that Naaman doesn't ask for permission he asks for forgiveness. In other words, he's not saying, hey, Elisha, I want to worship these foreign deities. Can I? He's not saying that. He's saying, hey, I don't want to worship these foreign deities, but when I'm with my king and he's worshiping foreign deities, is that okay? That's what he's asking. Number two, notice the profession of faith and the depth of his profession of faith in verses 15 and 17. The text does not seem to suggest that this is a false profession of faith. Everything in the text seems to say that this is genuine, this is authentic. He's healed. He comes to Elisha. He says, now I know there is no other God than the God of Israel. In verse 17, he makes the the commitment, the allegiance. He says, I will not sacrifice or offer burnt offerings to any other God than Yahweh. Everything points to this being a genuine conversion. 
And third, Elisha knows that this guy's situation is quite unique and, and different and, and out of the box. He knows that he's got to go back to his family in Aram. He knows that he's got commitments back in Aram. He's got relational ties. He's got his job. He's got his home. He's got his family. And he knows that there's no community of faith of, of Israelites in Aram. And so as a concession, as a concession, he says, go in peace. He accommodates to the complex and the complicated situation that Naaman found himself in. Now, I think this speaks into our day and age, particularly in relation to religious idolatry. We tend to think that there's one particular way that God works in people's lives. And it has to be like that for everyone. And if it's not like that, if they, if they fit outside of our boxes, then we dismiss them as people and we invalidate their experience. It may even be the case that they didn't have an experience with God, but it also may be the case that they did have a very genuine experience with God, and you are now totally like dismissing them and, and not accounting for the complexities and the gray areas of life. This is, this is exactly what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. The Pharisees made people their slaves by taking the law and forcing people to bend to the law. But there were particular circumstances in people's lives that the, the, the law wasn't meant to be applied to. We see the Sabbath as an example. You know, the, the Pharisees would say you can't even pick grains of wheat during the Sabbath. And Jesus says, man, your hypocrisy. And this, is the, this is what the Pharisees are doing. And this is why Jesus is scandalized at them. And he denounces them. That's religious idolatry. It's a religious idolatry where we don't factor the unique circumstances that people are in. What would you have preferred that Elisha said, you know what, abandon your family, abandon your home, abandon your livelihood, and come and live here with me? Elisha knows that this is a complex situation, and so he goes, go in peace. And when we have the same attitude where we say, you know what, sorry, when we have the opposite attitude, and we say, I don't care about the complexities of life. I don't care about the unique situation that each individual is in. I'm not going to open my mind to, to the unique way that God works in their lives. Then we're setting ourselves up and them for failure. Because that's a religious idol. I'm not saying that there's not a particular way that God works in people's lives. A normal way that God works in people's lives. All I'm saying is that we need to be a little bit more open-minded and realize that sometimes, sometimes, God deals with people differently than His normal way for the sake of the person who finds themselves in a really complex situation. 
You know, I was asked this question when I was at Bible college. If a transgender person walked into your church and they've gone through transition, what would you say to them? And, and they fall into the conviction of the Spirit and they, they surrender their life to Jesus. What would you say? What would you recommend that they do? If a homosexual couple walks into your church and they fall under the conviction of the Spirit and they surrender their life to Jesus and they've adopted kids and they've raised them for years, what would you say to them? We need to understand that life is complex and there are gray areas and I'm not saying this or that. All I'm saying is that we need to factor that. We need to make sure that just like Elisha, we are walking in wisdom. Because if we allow our religious idols to take over, we misrepresent Christ, we hurt ourselves, we hurt the, 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 the world, we hurt people. Verse 19. After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, My master has let this Aramean Naaman off lightly by not accepting him what he brought from him, what he bought, brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? Gehazi said, it's all right. My master has sent me to say, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing. But Naaman insisted, please accept 150 pounds. He urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags and two sets of clothing. Naaman gave them the, to two of his, sorry, Naaman gave them to two of his attendants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and deposited them in the house. Then he dismissed the men and they left. So what happens here is that we're introduced to a new set of, a new character. And his name is Gehazi. Gehazi is the servant of Elisha. And Gehazi, what he does is he runs after Naaman. Naaman's already left. He runs after Naaman, and he uses a cover story as a lie. He basically says to Naaman, you know what? Elisha's changed his mind. He does want the money now. He does want the money. There's been like two sons of the prophets who have come from a long journey, and they need some supplies. They're really tired. So look, my, my, my master is asking you, Naaman, for some money. The money that he had previously rejected, he's now asking for some of it. All we need is 35 kilos of silver and two sets of clothing. That's all we need. And so he, he lies to Naaman. And Naaman, being moved in his heart by generosity not only gives him the 35 kilos of silver, but he doubles it, right? He gives him 70 kilos of silver. Now, I want you to notice the irony of the story 
here before we move to verse 25, that the foreigner who bowed down to idols was the one who was set free, and the Israelite who was supposed to have no idols, according to the first and second commandment of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, was the one who ended up being enslaved. Gehazi's idol was money and possessions. And that's really now coming to the fore. It's really being revealed in the story. Verse 25. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. He replied, your servant didn't go anywhere. There's another lie. And my heart didn't go when the man got down from his chariot to meet you, Elisha said. Is this a time to accept silver and clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, flocks and herds, and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your servants and descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence diseased, resembling snow. So what's going on here? Gehazi comes back. He stashes the treasure before Elisha can see him. And then after a while, he goes to where Elisha is, and he stands next to him. And when he stands next to him, Elisha asks him, where have you been? And he lies. He says, I didn't go anywhere. What are you talking about? And then Elisha calls his bluff and basically says, if you didn't go anywhere, what's this revelation I'm getting from God that you accepted some money from Naaman? Like, what happened in my heart just then? that I knew that something, what, what happened? If you didn't go, then what did I experience? And then Gehazi ends up getting the skin disease that Naaman originally had, and it says that he walked away from the presence of Elisha. I want you to notice, friends, the way that an idol works, and here we reach the crux of the message here this morning, the way that an idol works. It starts by making you a set of promises, It promises you everlasting security, everlasting satisfaction, and everlasting purpose. That in it, you'll be able to find your identity. And then, once you buy into the promise, it requires you to make extreme sacrifices so as to acquire it. We see that in the the story of Gehazi. What did Gehazi have to sacrifice in order to get his idol? He had to sacrifice his integrity. He had to sacrifice his honesty. He had to come to Naaman and say, my master told me to tell you that, you know, we want the money. The idol requires you to sacrifice in order to attain it. Sacrifice yourself in order to attain it. Contrast that with what happens when Elisha heals Naaman. While the God of Elisha healed Naaman free of charge, the counterfeit God of of Gehazi required him to sacrifice himself in order to attain it. It's two very different gods there. And then, Once you've bought into the promise and you've sacrificed things that you never thought you'd sacrifice, you discover that it's not enough. 
you discover that it's, it just leaves you empty. And it brings a new set of promises. We saw this with Gehazi, for example. He went and he had in his mind, I'm only going to take 35 kilos of silver. That was in the bag. It was guaranteed. He had it in his hand. And then all of a sudden, Naaman says, wait a second, why don't I give you 70? And because Gehazi didn't find his purpose, his identity, his happiness with 35 kilos, he thought 70 would, would be enough. He thought 70 kilos of silver would fulfill him. He thought that in the 70 kilos, as opposed to the 35 kilos, he'd find his identity. Do you think he found himself? Do you think he was satisfied? He was happy all of a sudden? Do you think he felt secure now with 70 kilos of silver over 35? This is the cycle of an idol. It not only makes promises to you, and not only requires you to make sacrifices to acquire it, you then discover upon acquiring it that it unfulfilled, it, its promises were unfulfilled, and then it brings you a new set of promises. And then, from there, you'd basically do anything to keep it. You want to protect your idol. Because you've already sacrificed so much of your integrity, of your time, of your energy, of your resources to have it. This is what we see with the story of Elisha and with Gehazi. Gehazi had already lied to the foreigner. He already said to someone that he'll never see again, we want the money. But now, when his precious idol is being threatened by Elisha, Elisha says, where have you been? And he doesn't just lie to a foreigner that he's never seen, never going to see again. He now lies to his master. There's another depth there. The master that he sees every day, the master that he serves, the master that he loves. What we wouldn't do to protect our precious little idols. It requires you to sacrifice more and more and more and more of yourself in order to not now acquire it because you have it, but to keep it because you've got something to lose now. This is where fight or flight tends to happen. You've heard of the concept of fight or flight, right? If we fly, we choose to bury our head in the sand in order to preserve and to keep our precious little idols. If we fight, we choose to harm and hurt those who we love in order to keep our precious little idols. The common denominator is that we want to keep it. Whether we fly or we fight, we want the precious idol for ourselves because we've bought into the lie that in it we'll find eternal fulfillment, eternal security, and eternal purpose. With Gehazi, he flew. He didn't fight. He didn't, he didn't swing any punches at Elisha. He dug his head in the sand and said, Elisha, I've been nowhere. He literally dug the treasure. He went and took it and put it in his home, and that was it. He flew. This is the never-ending cycle of idolatry. You're introduced to a set of promises which prompts you to go to extreme lengths to have it. Once you have it, you realize, that the, promise, you realize the promises were empty, and you're introduced to a new set of promises, and that prompts you to go to even more extreme lengths to keep it, only to discover 
that the precious idol and its promises were empty. And that leads, after a while, over and over and over and over again, leads to breakdown. It leads to breakdown. We see this again in the story of Gehazi. Gehazi's skin was diseased. And I think that that's just a symbol of what an idol does to your heart. It breaks you down. It leaves you with nothing. Dissatisfied, discontent, angry, and lonely. It leads to a breakdown. This is what Tim Keller says, we take more and greater risks to get an ever-diminishing satisfaction from the thing we crave until a breakdown occurs. Every idol will leave your heart broken because it cannot bear the weight of your dreams and hopes. The solution is God. God offers a solid foundation for us to be able to stand on. While the counterfeit God makes empty promises, God's promises are sure because they're bound to His character and He's unchangeable. While the counterfeit God requires you to sacrifice yourself for them, the God of Elisha, Yahweh, sacrificed Himself for us so that we could have Him through the person, Jesus Christ. While the counterfeit gods are never able to scratch that itch, the God Yahweh, the God of Elisha, is the God who, the more you discover of Him, the more fulfilled you feel. It's this never-ending cycle of joy and fulfillment and happiness. And while the counterfeit gods can be taken from you, the true God of the universe transcends this world and has united Himself to you so that nothing can threaten your bond with Him and He cannot be taken from you. He cannot be threatened or stolen or taken. It's not possible. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's why God is a far, far better object of your worship than all these false idols, whatever way, shape, or form they may be. You know, <clears throat> for about two and a half years, maybe three, I felt like I've had this something broken in me and I haven't been able to know what it is, and I haven't been able to fix it. And in my relationship with God, I was struggling to connect with Him. At the beginning, what was happening was that it would happen, and then I'd kind of fly, you know, the fight or flight. I'd fly, I'd dig my head in the sand, and it would go away, and I'd be fixed for a while, only to then encounter the same struggle I was going through. And, and that, that span of time between my struggle and being okay was shortening as time progressed, which came to the point earlier this year where it was like this perpetual brokenness. And I didn't know what was going on. 
I don't know if you guys have ever felt that. You know something's broken. You don't know what it is, and you don't know how to fix it. And so I went on this quest internally to try and figure out what's going on. And it led me back to an idol in my heart. You know, I'd come from a family of pastors. I'd come from a family where my grandfather was a pastor, my father was a pastor, my cousin is a pastor, my uncle is a pastor. And when I was younger, I'd never really thought about pastoring and pursued a a career in business. But then God called me to the ministry, and I started pastoring a, a church nearby, And I didn't realize that at some point, I latched my identity onto my career. I latched my identity onto pastoring. And so what happened from there was we planted a church in 2017 on the Gold Coast. And it felt like we just kept hitting barriers that we just couldn't recover from. Like like we'd hit a barrier one year and we'd halve. Next year, hit another barrier, we halved. And this happened three or four times. And at some point towards the end, COVID hit. And not only did COVID hit, then once the restrictions lifted, we were able to gather once again. There was another theological issue, and the church halved. And what ended up happening from there was that the church folded over, and everyone voted to close the church. I didn't know what was the issue. But what I felt was that I was deeply wounded by God for taking pastoring from me. I never would have imagined there would be a day that I would say, from that point onwards, I am not a pastor. When in reality, now that I've come to think of it, God was preserving me. He was sparing me. He was saving me from latching my identity onto something that is sinking sand. Pastoring is not going to fulfill my, my joy. It, it, it may temporarily, but it's not everlasting joy. It's not going to provide me with the everlasting security I need. It's not going to provide me with the everlasting purpose that I need. I will not find my identity in what I do or in my career, even if it's something as good as pastoring. And when I realized that, God unraveled my heart. And He showed me that He is the only one that we can build our lives on. Because He is infinitely wise, infinitely loving, infinitely powerful. He is the only one who is able to satisfy my dreams and my hopes. He's the only one who is able to provide me with eternal joy, eternal satisfaction, eternal security, and eternal purpose. Now, that's my story, and I can tell you there's probably millions of other hidden idols in the cracks and crevices of my heart, but I want to ask you about your story. What are the idols in your heart? In fact, why don't you close your eyes, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. 
I want, I want to do a, a simple exercise. I'm just going to ask some questions, and I want you to sincerely reflect on them for a moment. I want you to ask God to search your heart, to bring to light anything that He'd like to bring to light. Remember that a God, an idol could be anything. Physical, metaphysical, personal, impersonal, a concept or a desire. Has God been talking to you about your own hidden idols? And if so, what are they? Is it your wife, your children, your finances, your career, the approval of people, power? What, if any, badge of honor or trophy or achievement have you wrapped your identity up in? circumstances do you find yourself most tempted to fly or fight in? What are the things that you constantly sacrifice for that you never thought you'd sacrifice? How much of your integrity how much of your finances, how much of your attention and time, energy? And what of those what what are you sacrificing those things for? Is there anything that has no price that you're willing to pay in order to get it and keep it? You know it's an idol when its demands on you exceed proper boundaries. When do you find yourself, what do you find yourself investing most of your thought, time, money, and energy into? What frightens you to death? There's something in your life that if you didn't have it, you'd feel like life was hardly worth living. there a common theme to when you feel disoriented? When you feel like there's no stable ground under your feet?
Do you find yourself in conflict with people often because of a particular reason? What is that reason? When do you find yourself most enraged, lonely, heartbroken, fearful, or willing to compromise your values? I want you to sincerely reflect on those questions, not only today, but as the week progresses. Know not only that Jesus is a sure foundation and that these idols are sinking sand, but also that there's a light in all of this. You might see your breakdown experience as a bad thing. But now that the idol's been exposed for what it is, a mute, deaf, and dumb, counterfeit God, you're in the position you need to be to realize that Jesus is all you need because right now, Jesus is all you've got. Jesus calls you to lay down your idols and come worship at his feet. Why don't we stand and let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your loving way in which you reveal the idols of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you're so gentle. We thank you, Lord, that you're so kind in the way that you do it, and you do it for our good even though it hurts, even though it's tough and it's difficult, Lord, you know that these are not foundations that we can build our life upon, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you will, in your own time and in your own way, reveal the hidden idols, Lord, of of our hearts. And that that will prompt us, Lord, to turn our eyes to Jesus. the one who has established our faith, the one who came, who despite being God, set aside his glory and lived in our midst, the one who lived perfectly, who had no idols, who loved you above all else at all times, who's now helped us to enter into that experience, who's united himself to us by the Spirit so that we're empowered to detect the idols and to demolish them. And we thank you, Lord, for your Son who died on the cross, raised from the dead. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.